my simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Sierra Leone has some of the world's highest maternal mortality rates. One nurse, Zainab, has not lost a single mother. This Mother's Day, join care in supporting maternal health around the world. Learn more at care.org slash Mother's Day. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs— but any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Well, today's episode is going to take me a bit more out of my comfort zone than is normally the case. Uh, my guest is Stephen Jackson. He was a highly respected basketball player in the NBA for many years, and he's now the co-host of a video podcast called All the Smoke, with one of his friends and another former NBA player named Matt Barnes, which has been really sort of getting a tremendous amount of attention, having an incredible array of guests, really some of the most famous basketball players and other athletes in the world and a range of celebrities and others. So it's a real honor for me to have him on. The reason I wanted to have Stephen Jackson on, he goes by Stack, that's what I'm calling him, is because he's been one of the people who's been more outspoken about the issues around drug testing and cannabis in the NBA and in professional sports for quite a number of years now. And he's also been somebody who's been one of the people most out there among professional athletes in addressing issues around the drug war and racial justice and has a particular connection to all this that we'll get into um, as we proceed. So, Stack, thanks so much for joining me on Psychoactive. Ethan, I'm honored to be here. Thanks for having me. 
let's just start off with this. I mean, the, the sense I have is that, you know, in professional sports, I mean, NBA, football, baseball, hockey, whatever, that, and even the Olympics, right? We're seeing a real movement around testing for marijuana and punishing people for marijuana. Why do you think that's happening? Is it just because it's getting legalized everywhere or, or what? Well, I think at, at one point, you know, it was a certain it was a certain demographic and and a certain culture that was glorifying marijuana and and and, and that marijuana was basically put on the pedestal in. And when that demographic, you know, as being young black athletes who were having a lot of money and who's who's reaching a lot of success at a young age, when it became a problem in sports for 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 teams and for businesses, I think that's when they really tried to step on it and, and, and make it look bad, you know, to, to, to the masses. But at the end of the day, you know, I remember when I was a kid, you know, my mom used to have house parties. My mom, my stepdad used to have house parties and they're smoking weed in the house like a cigarette. So it's a conversation that you got to have, but you have to know what you're doing. You have to know why you're doing it. And everybody's not inhaling cannabis and, and, and consuming cannabis to be seen or to be in the hip crowd. A lot of people are doing them for the right reasons, for medical reasons, to be sane. And so, I mean, when you talk about it, sort of, it's a kind of, I mean, there's, you say there's sort of kind of a social aspect to the marijuana use. It's very popular among young athletes, especially black athletes, but more generally, but also a medical thing, right? I mean, I think you talked about how it would help you relax or feel better after games, right? I mean, I mean, is that what it is for most people? Well, for, well, for me, I, could, I can definitely speak for me and guys like Matt Barnes because we, we're very similar. And... I went the long road to get to the NBA, you know, trying out for 18 teams, breaking both of my feet, uh, dealing with death to my older brother and a lot of different things coming up that that can have you mentally disturbed, you know. And as as a kid dealing with so much, especially as a teenager, when one to help my mom and one to do the right things. But it's so easy to do the wrong things around me. The cannabis and basketball helped me escape. That was my two escapes. So when I played basketball, I was able to escape from from the world that was going on. As soon as I leave the court, I'm back to the real world where the only way I could escape and keep myself sane was cannabis. So um, I know uh, the injuries that I that I play. I played three years with a broken toe. I couldn't have done that without cannabis. Being able to to play 82 games, deal with the ups and downs, deal with uh, being uh, labeled as a thug or something that I'm not while I'm playing basketball, all those things can be frustrating. People don't understand. You can make all the money in the world, but mental health is undefeated. I don't care what you have. Mental health can still deal with you. And you can have all the money in the world, but you still deal with mental things. You still have insecurities. You still deal with ups and downs. And you think that's generally true of guys in the NBA and maybe other leagues as well? It's definitely true in all sports. And that's why they're not drug testing now, because they see that cannabis, one, you ain't, you're not going to stop the players from, from doing cannabis because it's, it's the safest drug. It's safer than alcohol. It's, it's mm -hmm. definitely safer than alcohol. So, so and, and that's why all professionals are not testing now because, okay, I would rather my player go home and smoke a joint or two than go to a club and get drunk and possibly get in a DUI. So it's making sense now, and I think it had been made since a long time ago. But like they say, they're starting to make money off of it, so now they're starting to listen. Yeah, I mean, it's also the fact, of course, you, now you got it legal for medical uses in 38 states and for all adults in 18 states. So you got the craziness, right, of people playing for teams in states where it's legal and still having a policy that says you can't use cannabis or you can't test positive. For, I mean, that also makes no sense, right? So it's not just the money. It's the broader political legalization of the whole thing, right? And, you got, and, and that's the thing. Make it make sense. You can't tell me that I can't 
use cannabis when I'm living in a state where it's legal. I don't care what sport I'm playing. We're going by this is we're going by we're going by the rules of the state. These are laws. The state makes the laws, not the the team you playing for. They don't make the rules. So that's why all these sports teams now are saying, okay, we're not testing for cannabis no more. And I remember when I first retired, as soon as I worked out on ESPN, the the first chance I got. To speak on cannabis, I said I smoked. I know I was the first one to say I smoked my whole career. I played more games than anybody. I, I played hurt. I didn't want to miss a game. But if I couldn't go home after playing 42 minutes, guarding a guy 100 pounds heavier than me, if I couldn't go home and smoke a joint just to come down uh, and relax, there's no way I would have made it 14 years. Yeah. And by the way, I should tell the audience, I mean, you know, Stack is not just bragging here. I saw a quote where Larry Bird, the very famous player for the Boston Celtics, you know, back when I back when I was younger, he described Stack as basically the toughest player in the league when it came to playing through pain and injuries. So I very much respect what you're saying. I assume the same thing's been true in football as well. Now, what I wonder is, though, you're using marijuana all during your career while it's against the policy. Right. So and you right, never right. want you got suspended for some other shit, but you never got suspended for weed. And so how did you manage that? I think for me, one, I didn't do it for the wrong reasons. A lot of people do it for the wrong reasons. They do it to be cool. They do it to be seen. It was always for me to be able to relax my mind, to be able to sleep, to cope with a lot of things. For me, you know, I always knew the drug rules. Right. Yeah. So at one point, if you have a positive test, then you go into a drug program and is and. For about five or six years, until they caught on to what we was doing, you could smoke as long as you was in the drug program. You just couldn't get out unless you passed three consecutive tests. So I so I figured it out. So I'm like, before y'all even test me, I'm going to let y'all know my piss is, uh, is, is, is going to be positive. So just put me in the drug program for the next six years. I don't care about getting out. I'm not getting suspended. I'm not, I'm not losing any money, but I'm still in the drug program. So that's when the things wasn't so harsh. So I figured that out. So I was able to smoke for six years until they were like, okay, they just in the program smoking. They're not even trying to get out. They figured it out. They they came up with another, with the random test. And it, it's definitely ways around. I had different relationships with different people. Sometimes we we drunk certain things to to mask, to mask our urine. Uh we did we did a lot of things that that we probably could have got caught and got in trouble for, but we didn't. But um Cannabis was just that important to us being sane enough to do our job. And what about the guys who were getting caught? Were they just being dumb or unlucky or was somebody go get, trying to get them or what was going on there? A little bit of both. See, I wasn't riding around with cannabis in my car and smoking with the car smoked out. So like like that stuff like that, they just that's just dumb. You you you, you tell them on yourself. You want to go to jail. You have no reason to be doing that anyway. You you want to get pulled over. Guys doing stuff like that just they doing it that's that's called doing it for the wrong reasons. Me, I never rode with it. I never put myself in a position outside of my home to be caught with it. So I, I did everything in the comfort of my own home and all with people or my teammates and people around who who were like-minded. And that's what I did. I think a lot of people get caught because they get sloppy. Uh, like I said, they, they, they want people to see them doing it, and they do it for the wrong reasons. And that's when you get caught. It never fails. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw when the guy who ran the NBA, David Stern, for like 30 years, right, kind of an almost an authoritarian but very powerful, effective leader, right, and he was the one suspending people left, right, and center. And then I see this thing where a former NBA player, somebody you had in your show, Al Harrington, who's now in the marijuana industry, you know, interviews Stern after educating about the issue, and Stern goes, well, 
I think we should change the policy now. I mean, why do you think, and then I see his successor, Adam Silver, you know, is kind of, you know, he won't boldly say, let's just stop the damn marijuana testing. Although I think they're just about there. But why does it take so long for these guys to do it? They know that 50, 70, 80% of all the players are using cannabis in one way or another. Why, what took so long? Well, I, I mean, a lot of things are just a conversation. You know what I mean? Like I said, I'd rather somebody sit back and wait till they have a conversation with somebody from that demographic or somebody who understands it and before they just come out and say, no, I'm against it, right? So, And that's what David Stern did. Al is my, is my closest friend in the world, and I was right there on the side of him uh, when he started Viola in uh, 2010. Viola's his uh, marijuana business, right? Yeah, it's his brand, Viola. It's called Viola. It's named after his grandmother. And I saw his vision. I was right there invested from the jump. And what Al doing now, he's a trendsetter. You know, he he, he saw something that a lot of people didn't see by by playing in, for the Nuggets, you know, when, when cannabis first came legal in um in Colorado, Denver, Colorado. So he was ahead of the game. He studied. He took his time to learn everything. And he has had so many athletes benefit from being in the cannabis business so far, from him teaching them the business and helping them start their own different brands and own grow houses and dispensaries and such. But David Stern sat down with the right person. Al knew everything about it. He knew the business. He knew the positive side of it. Any negative idea or question that David Stern had, Al was able to answer it with a positive answer. And David Stern, you know, respected it and understood that Al was coming from facts. So by David Stern going to the right person, I can see why he instantly changed his mind. Mm -hmm. Because Al is the spokesperson for the NBA and for athletes all around the world because he is the leader. He's a, He has the biggest... We have the biggest black-owned cannabis brand called Viola, and he is the biggest athlete involved in it. So that conversation was had by the two right people, and that conversation was long yeah. overdue. A lot of these owners, a lot of these people who run these leagues, like the commissioners, stuff like that, they're the ones that need to sit down with someone that's from that different graphic, that understands cannabis, that, that knows the benefits of cannabis, and they can sit down with them and get an understanding. But a lot of these people has, have never sat down with anyone. They're just judging from the outside looking in. They're automatically thinking, okay, drug, drug, cannabis is a drug. It's a drug. What's well, a lot of drugs I hear that y'all making money off of that's killing people. Mm -hmm. You know, I and mean, also it seemed like in football, you got a little more of this. You know, I, I remember uh, back, it must have been seven years ago, I was doing a, a TV uh, interview at CNN with Fareed Zakaria. And in the green room with me is Marvin Washington, a, a you know, football player who had been in the Super Bowl, Super Bowl, has a Super Bowl ring. And he was out there talking about CBD. Right. And 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 he's now become kind of one of the leaders in there. And one of the things I seem to notice is that in football, the guys seem to be a little more focused on the CBD side of marijuana, whereas maybe in the basketball thing, it's more combined THC, CBD. And maybe the football thing is about, you know, the traumatic brain injuries and, and all that stuff. But I mean, do you notice this difference among different leagues about how they come at this issue? See, with me, I, I look at things different. Like it wasn't a secret with me. Like, before I even got into the NBA, before I got to the Spurs, Greg Popovich came to me after summer league and told me, this is this is Greg Popovich. I'm going to tell you two of the best coaches to ever coach in the, in the NBA. These are the conversations I had with them before I played with. Greg Popovich comes to me and says, Steven Jackson, I, I want you on the team. You, you had a great summer league, but I hear you like to smoke cannabis. You cannot smoke cannabis while you play with the Spurs. This is, when I'm, this is my introduction to the NBA. So they already know what you like to do and a lot of things about you. I get to Golden State. Don Nelson... He applauds the fact that I get my last drug test. We were smoking all year anyway, but he did not have a problem with us smoking. When we beat Dallas in the uh, first round, 
the first eight seed to be the uh, number one seed in the playoffs. We go to Don Nelson's house. As soon as we walk in, he's like, Jack, hey, Woody Harrelson's in the back rolling doobies. So some coaches understood the dynamic of what it did for the players. And guys like me, I didn't abuse it. And and Nelly and these coaches, I'm pretty sure like Don Nelson, he played. So they, I heard they did worse things when they were playing, you know, at a locker room, drinking beers and smoking cigarettes at halftime. So I was blessed to be in positions where coaches let me be me. You know, at all times. Uh, and uh, even with Rick Carlisle, coaches let me be me. So let me just back up for a second and tell our audience. So some of the names that Stack just mentioned, Greg Popovich is the famous coach of the San Antonio Spurs. I think the president of the team, mm-hmm. too, who's won tons of champions, one of the one of the leaders in basketball history for winning championships and major games. And Don Nelson is in the Hall of Fame, I think, because he's probably the second most winning coach in history. Popovich is interesting, right? Because Popovich, among all the coaches, has been among those speaking out the most about racism and racial injustice and jumping on with Black Lives Matter, where George Floyd gets killed. But I haven't heard of much on the stuff about about drug testing and about marijuana. And I, I mean, unless I've missed something there. And I'm so I'm curious both if you heard different, has he been on that issue too? And also, Stack, I mean, when he told you that, did you actually stop smoking marijuana or you just got more careful? Absolutely not. I never stopped. And I knew I wasn't going to stop. And uh, I think he knew that, too, but I think he still had to say it. I don't think he'll ever come out and publicly stand behind cannabis or anything like that. That's just not who Pop is. But at the same time, if he knows it's helping people, if he knows it's saving lives, if, if he knows it's, it's, it's medication for a lot of people and help a lot of people stay sane, he, he, won't, he, won't, he won't go against it. He might not stand behind it, but he won't go against it. And, and, and that's one thing I respect about him. Pop knew, Pop knew me. He knew I was smoking the whole time. But I was performing. I was doing my job. If, if it ever became a problem where it embarrassed the team or embarrassed the organization, I would have to stand behind that and, 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 and deal with my punishment. But that never happened. And, and that's why I always have Pop's respect. In a way, right, it's basically what he was telling you was don't get caught. Right. And what the, what the whole policy was doing was taking an activity. It's almost like alcohol prohibition when half the country's drinking. You're in the NBA or NFL or whatever, and half the players are using this stuff in one way or another, if not more. But they're all being expected to lie or to cheat in some respect. I mean, that's part of the thing that's so I think that was so kind of pathetic about the whole drug testing policy. It's a kind of wink, wink, nod, nod. Everybody knows it's bullshit. Right. But meanwhile, you're expected to basically be dishonest and to scam. Um, I mean, is that do you just learn to live with that, or do you disagree with what I just put out there about that? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, we we I know I did. I mean, I had to finesse the system, you know, in, in order to keep smoking and keep myself sane. I mean, I can imagine, you know, I had I had a number of years, five or six years, where I averaged twenty points. You know, um, I know if I was able to walk in the arena knowing that I can, when I leave the game, I can smoke in peace, don't have to worry about being drug tested or hiding it. How better my performance would have been! Oh, oh man, I, I just I, I think about that all the time. How these guys can just go home and, and smoke in peace, you know, and stuff like that. So, um, it would have been a different league for a lot of people. A lot of people wouldn't have got caught. A lot of people wouldn't have got suspended. A lot of stuff that happened in the league wouldn't have happened if guys didn't have to hide the fact that they were smoking cannabis around yeah, my hey, time. Stack, I'll tell you some history. It must have been the late 90s or something, and something had popped up, early 2000s, can't remember exactly, and I actually called Billy Hunter, who was then the head of the Players Association, the NBA, and I said, you know, we got to do something. You know, this is ridiculous. And he was very engaged. He said, you're right, you're right, we got to do something. And this is over 20 years ago. And then I never heard back from him. 
And I don't know whether it was just he felt too early, too premature. Now you jump forward, and his successor as head of the Players Association, Michelle Roberts, I think she's on the board of a cannabis company, right? So, I mean, I guess there has been a significant evolution in what's going on here, you know? Yeah, I th- uh, Michelle Roberts is, is, is the one who initially reached out to Al Harrington to start that conversation. So she uh-huh. she she understood. Yeah, she was a she was a trailblazer for it. You know, people can't actually say the truth until after they retire. You know, I mean, I tell you, in football, you remember there was that guy. Uh, what was his name? Ricky Williams. I mean, Ricky Williams yeah. was an incredibly talented football player, and he actually he made an issue of it while he was playing. Right? I think he even he even quit for a while. Because he said, I don't want right, to put up did. with this bullshit. Right? But nobody right. else, yeah. But he was a rare and unusual case in all of this stuff. You know? Yeah, well, it, it never it, it, ne- it never got to that point with us, I think, especially with me. Because, like I said, I was finessing the system. I, I had made so many connects to do what I needed to do that I wasn't even worrying about, you know, taking it to, 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 to that point. But, um, you know, I, I don't think at that time either guys like me had the power to even speak on it. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't, a, I wasn't one of the top players in the league. I was considered the thug because I was a loyal teammate because I went to stands with my, with my, my teammate Ron Artesan because I defended Jamal Tinsley at the strip club. I was considered a thug, which I wasn't. I was just a loyal teammate. So with me, I don't think I was even the person to speak up and, and, and to bring that to their attention at the time. It had to be a bigger name player. They would have just laughed at me. Yeah. What about, I saw, you know, that Steve Kerr, you know, who played for the Bulls and then has, you know, won all these championships with the Warriors as a coach recently. He came right out um, recently talking about his own use of medical marijuana, I think, for, you know, back surgeries or back pains. I mean, is that the kind of thing that's having a significant influence on other coaches? Yeah, I mean, Steve was on the 2003 championship team with me in San Antonio, and all those guys knew what I was doing. Um, I think with Steve, I think, you know, what what you put your body through as a professional athlete, what Steve put his body through is still, and now he's having back problems. Uh, a lot of people don't want to take pills. A lot of people want to take um, uh, pills that's going to have them having withdrawals like they like they did a hard, uh, like they doing cocaine or something where they 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 having shakes because they don't want to take that medicine no more. Like it, it's it, it's amazing how how uh, they'll force that on you, but. Taking a, a piece of candy with some with some TA with just say fifteen percent TAC in it that'll relax your whole body and does no damage to you won't 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 make you have have uh, major withdrawals. That's a big problem. But I love the fact that you know people are caring about their lives and not being afraid to speak up on how simple things can be. You know, it's not a secret. It's been holistic doctors saying the benefits of cannabis for years, but they never want to listen. So I'm glad guys with the stature of Steve Kerr are standing up behind it because it's, there's so many benefits of it, and they just want to push those pills and those pharmaceutical stuff because that's big business. Mm-hmm. But they know cannabis is way better for you. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. 
This Mother's Day, join CARE in honoring the resilience of mothers around the world. In Sierra Leone, facing one of the world's highest maternal mortality rates, one nurse named Zainab has not lost a single mother. Supported by CARE's work, Zainab's clinic has become a beacon of hope in her community. Zainab's spirit extends to CARE's work worldwide, aiming to ensure every mother's safety during childbirth. Learn more at care.org slash Mother's Day. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. Let me branch out here a little bit, Stack. You know, when it comes to marijuana, you know, we talk about it's having these benefits, right? And, and obviously we're talking about, you know, very few people were using marijuana, you know, before a game. So what's your view about drug testing for these other drugs in sports? You're seeing more and more people getting suspended in the NBA, not just other leagues for performance-enhancing drugs. Does that all sound right and fair to you? Or do you think these policies are yeah, too draconian? Yeah, I think... They getting caught for performance enhancement drugs, but I don't think they're taking it to enhance. I think they're taking like a dick hardener pills, like to make the dick harder a little longer, those type of pills. And they have certain things in them that when they do take drug tests, that 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 drug test that they they end up positive and 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 some I guess some of the ingredients in them show a same positive test as it was it would if they took performance enhancement drugs. Yeah, but, you know, I saw, was it one of the uh, former MVP, Derek Rose, some years ago? You know, he said, oh, there's a lot of performance-enhancing drug use in basketball. And then he kind of walked it back. And then there was a coach. Uh, no, who, I dis- yeah, I, yeah, I disagree with that. I okay. disagree with that. But then there was the coach, George Carl, who won, like, over 1,000 games. And he wrote a book saying, oh, there's a lot more of it than people realize. And when you think about some of these performance-enhancing drugs, they're not, like, bulking you up the way Barry Bonds did to put on 15 pounds and, you know, break Babe Ruth's home run record. Some of this is just enabling people to kind Kind of heal better, you know, get their muscles better. I mean, not all that removed from the way you described the benefits of marijuana. Yeah, but uh, I I kind of disagree with that and agree with that. You're right. Some at some at some stages, yeah. But when you taking stuff like HGH and performance enhancement drugs, you 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 you're taking it to get an edge, or you're taking it to help 
uh, give yourself uh, a better chance after an injury or something like that. We stayed injured. We 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 was hurt a lot. I mean, like I said, I played three years with a broken toe. I never thought about taking something that would give me a boost or or taking or, or even even thought about uh, something that wasn't natural to take. You know, I never I, I I didn't even like taking you know pills they gave me for pain. You know, the the the, worst, the farthest I went with was a leave, and that's all I take today besides cannabis. But um, I think I think a lot of guys in the in the NBA, especially around my time, wasn't nobody taking you know. Uh, uh, performance enhancement drugs. I know guys that be in the playoffs and you know they're dealing with two broken fingers and a broken toe or something like that. They might take a shot to get through that game. You know, they might take mm -hmm. a shot to get through that game. You know what I'm saying? Just to play that game. But that wasn't helping his performance. It was helping him get through to to be able to get through the four quarters. So it, it's a big difference. Yeah. God, I remember, you know, when I was a kid, the famous book Ball Four by the pitcher Jim Bownett. Right, I don't know if you know, you know, but you know, you were just this is probably before you were born. But he kind of revealed, kind of outed all of the drug use and other sorts of stuff going on in professional baseball. But one of the points being made was, you know, in in professional baseball, you're playing 162 games a year. You're traveling across time zones all the time. You're playing night games, playing day games, right? And that basically, he was saying the amphetamine you know, was just absolutely pivotal to helping people, you know, live this way. I mean, it should almost have been a prescribed drug, and yet that's banned. And I wonder, you know, what your thoughts are about that. Millions of people are being prescribed Ritalin, which is basically amphetamine. Um, right. But should that be a banned uh, drug? I mean, especially when we talk about you guys being on the road all the time and the exhausting nature of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I can speak on that Ritalin for sure. I, I, I had a, um, my third oldest daughter. She used to have seizures a lot, and uh, mm -hmm. that's what they prescribed to her. And it 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 it, it was making her worse. It, she couldn't think. She was having more seizures, and um, I couldn't I couldn't wait till we was able to get her off. She just graduated high school. She was mm -hmm. uh, in home school. She graduated with honors, she, and she's been vaping for three years now. Mm -hmm. You know, she's still dealing with lupus, but she's doing a lot better. Mm -hmm. And um, I couldn't see it no other way. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? So I think all those all all those things that they're pushing. What's big business is proven too many times that it is, it's not healthy. And a lot of that stuff, they give it to you to, to get dependent on it, to keep buying it. I mean, there's no secret what, it, what, what, what those medications do, no, no, but, I, it doesn't, but it doesn't help those kids at all. Well, I'll tell you something. I mean, I, I'm sorry to hear about your, about your daughter dealing with lupus, but, you know, the fact of the matter is even with that riddle and all the kids, for some of them it helps them, and some of them it's really the wrong thing, and you're right, they're pushing it too much. But when it comes to the issue around, you know, the use of amphetamine, I mean, hell, the U.S. military is has been allowing its long-distance pilots to use low-dose amphetamine for decades because they found it reduced the right. number of crashes, reduced fatigue. And so, you know, I keep mm -hmm. thinking that when it comes to, to professional sports, competitive stuff like that it's a matter of i mean drugs are so often a matter of different strokes for different folks right we know that right, weed affects right. people differently we know that uh, stimulants affect people differently we know all this sort of stuff and i keep coming to this point that if it's not giving you a really an unfair competitive advantage the kind of bulking up your muscles the way say barry bonds did or alice rodriguez did or whatever that you know essentially right. you should leave people alone and let them use what's going to work for them to get through a season right which is right. incredibly you know, I don't know. Anyway, right. think think but, about it, man. But, <laughs> but you're right. But you're right about that. But I think the the reason what what makes it all what made it bad is when you had those athletes getting caught in the hotel with two women with cocaine, missing the games. When you had them getting pulled over with drunk, you know what I'm saying? Like all those situations is what made it bad. You know, yeah. I'm saying guys doing it for the wrong reasons, not not and 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 letting it 
the, the drugs was doing them instead of them doing the drugs. Yeah, but you also hear about the, you know, why was the NBA management so resistant to opening up on this stuff? And, my, 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 you know, about the fear of, you know, you know, ball players walking through a hotel lobby with the girls and smelling of weed and that presenting the wrong image. I mean, wasn't that part of it as well? Well, I could tell you about me, and I think Matt Barnes said it on one of our shows. I used to get on the plane with a Louis Vuitton bag with at least about uh, three, mm-hmm. four ounces on it every trip, and everybody smelled it. Everybody smelled it, but everybody knew it was me, and nobody said nothing. But so you know, it's it's just it's just, it's just you know, some mm-hmm. people do it the right way, some people don't. You know what I mean? But like I said, mm-hmm. like I said, I never, I I never was caught with it, so it was never a problem for me to to finesse it and get away with it. But mm-hmm. when you're in a position where one that one time where you embarrass a team or embarrass an organization, getting caught, getting pulled over, something like that, that is forever, that's forever on you. And it's going to be hard for you to kind of shake that. You know what I'm saying? And, and that, that's going to be like a little cloud over you wherever you go. Yeah. Okay, so, so Stack, let's just shift gears here a bit. So a year and a half ago, right, a guy named George Floyd gets murdered by a cop named Derek Chauvin in in Minneapolis. And it unleashes a kind of second wave of Black Lives Matter and demonstrations all around the country and around the world and more white people speaking up on behalf, you know, on the issue of racial justice than ever before. And all of a sudden, you pop up in Minneapolis. And maybe just explain to our listeners how that came about. Well, I've been knowing George for 20, 25 years. Uh, we grew up an hour away from each other. He's a couple years older than me, and we had a friend that was from my hometown named Telly Joyce. And Telly, Telly told me one day on the basketball court that me and, me and uh, he has a friend that 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 looks just like me, and we might have the same father. I'm like, yeah, right. He said, I'm gonna bring him down here. He brought him down there. I look at him, and as soon as we see each other, the first thing we say is, "Who your daddy? Who your daddy?" We look alike that much where. We really could have been brothers, and uh, we just hit it off. We became good friends, and we call, we started calling each other twin from that day forward. And uh, he was an athlete. He played. He was uh, one of the best football players in Texas when he was in high school at Yates, and also one of the best basketball players. But twists and turns, and 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 the areas we lived in, you know, can can change our lives in a heartbeat. And uh, we put out. So we both put ourselves in certain situations growing up. You know, I think. Um, with me, I was able to escape some things that he wasn't able to escape, and uh, our neighborhoods ended up taking him under a little bit and getting him in trouble, where I ended up continuing to play and getting to the NBA, and um, he ended up you know, trying to figure it out, being home in Houston, and uh, try to figure his life out, stay out of trouble. And uh, we became good friends every summer when the season's over, especially around the time when I was in San Antonio. I used to go to Houston, and I used to spend my whole time in Third Ward in the CUNY Home Projects with him and the rest of the fam in Third Ward, Texas. And um, time passed, you know, he, we both got our families, we both got kids, we both got daughters the same age, and, you know, you become men, you, you, you separate, but you still love each other. You, you might not see each other every day, you know, because like I said, we wasn't real family, he, was, he wasn't my real brother, but we stayed in contact. So uh, he was going to Minnesota because he had got a CDL license and he was going out there to drive trucks. And uh, we had spoken before he went because he wanted me to send him boxes of clothes for job interviews, which we, we both posted on our social medias around that time. And uh, I was so happy for him because one thing about him, he was a, he was one of my friends that never abused our friendship. You have a lot of guys, especially when you're an NBA player and you have money and you reach success, a lot of people are around you for the wrong reasons. 
and they want to be with you for the wrong reason, try to benefit off you. He wasn't that guy. He 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 he, he genuinely cared about me, and uh, he kept me out kept me out of harm's way, kept me around, kept me away from the wrong things. So that's why our relationship, why I valued our relationship. So he was down there trying to change his life, and you know sometimes regardless where you go, certain things are hard to escape. He got caught up a little bit while he was down there trying to change his life, and uh, I got a, I was on the couch sleep. One day um, that morning with my daughter and my mother-in-law called me, you know, she she actually texted me a video of it. And I didn't really look at it because me and her speak on the injustice that police do all the time. So when she sent me the video, I'm thinking it's just another video that she's sending me. So I go back to sleep. I get like 60 more messages and I just open one. And it's my close friend, Mike D from my hometown. And he's, and it's an exact text that he sent me says, did you see what they did, your twin in Minnesota? And when he said twin, it instantly clicked that I got the video from my mother-in-law, and she's from Minnesota. She lives in Minnesota. So everything just clicked. I'm like, no, you know what I mean? I ended up screaming. I started crying. Mm-hmm. I jumped up and scared my daughter. It, 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 it was tough to see because, you know, I saw myself down there. And a lot of times as a man, especially with, with your loved ones, you feel it's, it's not too much you can't control besides unfortunate sickness or unfortunate death. Everything else as a man, you feel you control. So I felt helpless, man. I, I know his daughter, Gianna, I, I couldn't imagine how she felt at the time. And 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 her mother, Roxanne, you know, I, I, that's, the, that's the two that I kept a relationship with over the years. And I instantly just thought about them. But one thing I did know and that I could clearly re, uh, keep in my mind at the time was out of all the people over the years that's been brutally murdered by police or been wronged by police or killed by police and never got justice, they never had a professional athlete who's an NBA champion who has one of the biggest podcasts in the world to speak up for them. And a lot of times when they do that, the first thing they do is bring up a person's past and try to demean them as much as they can to make the murder look valid to the world. And I wasn't going to let that happen to my, to my twin. I, 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 I went to Minnesota. I had no idea what I was doing. It was all off emotion and real pain and hurt. You know, Jamie Foxx came with me. Uh, Carl Anthony Towns pulled up with me. Bun B pulled up with me. A lot of friends pulled up with me. My son, Tamika Mallory. And they stood with me because this wasn't a situation where there's people showing up for somebody that they didn't know because they feel that this is the right thing to do. This is my real twin. This is the only person I can say to my twin, my real friend. So this is my real pain that I that I was displaying to the world. and. You know, from from uh, Bon Jovi making that song, saying that you know, my hearing me speak, you know, touched him, and 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 to say that I am face all part to be the biggest civil rights movement ever, eighteen countries, all fifty states at one time. I'm honored to say that I I was able to to be a part of that for my brother, and and we was able to get justice, but and a lot has changed, but the world still hasn't changed because it's been a a thousand murders by police and shootings by police since George Floyd. So it was just something that I felt I needed to do. I didn't ask to be in that position, but you know, like I said, it was my real pain. I think I would have done that for any one of my brothers. And you know, I'm glad I did it. I, I don't regret anything. I put a lot of stuff on the line. You know, a lot of people didn't agree with what I was doing and what I was saying, but I was comfortable with it because I'm one person that know, you know, I, I stand on something that says love for all who have love for all. I've told every race in this world, somebody from every race in this world that I love them, and they told me the same. So I can stand on that. So I know it's not rocket science. I know it's just treat people how you want to be treated. But a lot of people make it seem like it's harder than that. And 
for me, if I have a chance to stand up for somebody I love or put myself in harm's way for somebody I love, when I know I'm doing the right thing and, and my heart is in the right place and I'm being righteous, I do it anytime. I never regret it. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. This Mother's Day, join CARE in honoring the resilience of mothers around the world. In Sierra Leone, facing one of the world's highest maternal mortality rates, one nurse named Zainab has not lost a single mother. Supported by CARE's work, Zainab's clinic has become a beacon of hope in her community. Zainab's spirit extends to CARE's work worldwide, aiming to ensure every mother's safety during childbirth. Learn more at care.org slash Mother's Day. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're gonna get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. <laughs> but it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. One of the things that really stood out for me also with the George Floyd thing was here you had this cop with his you know knee on his neck and George Floyd going, I can't breathe. And you got one of the other cops, the younger cops, you know, saying to the bystanders and, the, and young people there, oh, it just goes to show, don't do drugs, don't do drugs. You know, and then the defense, when they were trying to defend those cops in court, they were making the case, oh, it's because George Floyd was on drugs, right? Which is just right. what they did with Trayvon Martin, right? And it's what they did with Michael right. Brown and Ferguson, what they did with LaCon McDowell in Chicago, and they, what they did with Philando Castile, also in Minneapolis, right? Or, you know, or Terrence Crutcher right. in Tulsa. I mean, it's just the repeated thing where you try to say that because you're on drugs, somehow that justified the cops doing to you what they did. 
and the video shows you one thing. Georgie was a gentle giant. As you, as you see, as soon as they was getting ready to cuff him, he submitted and sat down. He 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 wasn't fighting back. He would never fight back. But at the same time, no man wants to be wronged or handled wrong when 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 they're when they're complying. And he was complying, you know. And I, but it was easy to see that it was something happened before that, and that officer definitely uh, had a vendetta on, well, with my brother. And for that for the for the EMS to pull up. And it's actual sheriffs in sheriff uniforms with guns get out the EMS. All that was kind of spooky to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, ne I've never seen it. I never seen the EMS pull up and it's actually sheriffs get out, pull out the, the stretcher and actually put the body on the stretcher. I've never seen sheriffs do that hmm. Hmm. ever in my life. Wow. Well, the fact that it was all on video, though, I mean, that obviously transformed things, transformed the country in a huge way. But, you know, when I think about, you know, the drug connection to all of this stuff, you know, what I kind of flash back to was the story of Len Bias. I mean, you know, you were, you know, you were just a, a what a, you know, a young kid back then. But I mean, I remember Len I Bias. I remember it, though. Yeah. And I, I was then I was finishing up my graduate work, studying on the whole drug issue and about to start becoming a professor. But I remember Len Bias. And for our audience, you know, Len Bias was a, a remarkable college basketball player, a black man. He gets drafted second in the draft by the Boston Celtics. And the next day he's out celebrating and snorting some cocaine and has an arrhythmia and dies, you know, of a, of a heart thing, you know, maybe an underlying condition, whatever. And the response right, of the society. I mean, there was this huge grief. But the very next thing that happened was a few weeks later, members of Congress get together and they pass one of the most draconian drug laws ever passed, mandatory minimum of 20 years for drug offenses, right? That results, that ultimately results, you know, in the incarceration of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans, mostly young black men. And what do they call the law? The Len Bias Law. You know, and, and, and yeah. it's just and then, you know, if you even think about some of the other deaths, not all the deaths were about, oh, that person was on drugs. You think about how, how, how Breonna Taylor got killed in Louisville. Right. It was a drug raid. Right. And she got shot. Or, you know, years ago, Catherine Johnson, 92 year old woman in Atlanta. You know, I mean, I mean, the, the drug enforcement thing. And so what you see is this kind of, you know, interplay on the one hand between the fears, the, the sensationalism around black people using drugs. And on the other hand, the justification of this drug war, which has led to, you know, the United States having the highest incarceration rate, you know, in the history of democratic societies and a history of incarcerating black men that grossly exceeds anything apartheid South Africa ever did. You're right. All, all, all the setup. They put the cocaine and drugs in the neighborhoods, then arrest them for it, make it illegal, then arrest them for it and put them in jail for the rest of their life. When I was growing up in middle school, at one point, I, cocaine was big and there's a lot of my friends, close friends selling it. Um, I remember at one point you were getting a year for every gram of cocaine, not ounce, every gram of cocaine. Mm -hmm. You know, this guy's getting caught with 10 ounces of, of, of cocaine, 20 ounces, 36 ounces, and they're getting a year for each gram. That didn't make any sense at all. <laughs> I, hey, I'm telling you, in, in, in New York, some of my first advocacy was around trying to reform the draconian Rockefeller drug laws in New York. When I first started working on this in, in you know, in the mid-90s, 94% of all the people locked up in New York state prisons on a drug charge were black or brown. 
even though black and brown people were no more likely or only be a little more likely than white people to be selling those drugs, you know? Right. So, I mean, it seems to me that you're among a whole group of athletes, former athletes, current athletes who are really beginning to speak out about this issue in a serious way. Yeah, especially with cannabis. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, when it comes to the issues around race, I mean, how do you think this all plays out in professional sports? I was looking at the stats recently and you see the NBA, it's three-fourths black. It's only, you know, 17 percent white and probably more than half those whites are not American. They're from abroad. Right. You look at the NFL, it's 60 percent black and maybe a quarter white. Right. Baseball, on the other hand, 60 percent white and then a third Hispanic and less than 10 percent black. And so, I mean, do you think that is there ways in which these policies are tougher? Is the one reason the NBA took so long to, you know, to kind of relax its marijuana policy because it's more, you know, it's primarily black athletes? Is that a factor here? That that's one, but just think about this, and 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 you got to think about too everything that's going on today, and how 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 blacks are speaking up, and and how things that has been unfair for years. People are starting to understand that that people are just not complaining. This has been going on for a long time. We've been mistreated and treated a certain way, and treated less than for a long time. Perfect example. I mean, the the malice in the palace. If that ha- if that was us and that happened today, wait, wait, just tell people what malice in the palace are because they won't know on a on this okay, on this podcast. Okay, well, well, malice in the palace is probably the biggest brawl ever in NBA history. It started on the court between two rival teams. I was on the Indiana Pacers and we were playing in Detroit against the Detroit Pistons. Um, it was a big rivalry. At the end, we were, we were winning the game. It was a big game to see what team was going to be the championship contender. We ended up blowing them out. Ron Artest wanted to get, give back a foul to Ben Wallace from the previous year in the Eastern Conference Finals, which didn't make any sense because we were winning by 15 points at 45 seconds left in the game. The game was over. Ron decides to go foul him anyway. Ben pushes him in the face. It starts a big old scuffle between both teams. No punches are thrown, but it's a lot of pushing going on. The referees do a bad job of getting Ben off the court where Ben instigates the fight for another 15, 20 minutes to the point where the fans are so riled up that a fan throws a beer on Ron Artest. It lands in Ron Artest's face. Ron Artest darts off in the stands after the guy, and our whole team goes, and it turns into a big old brawl where we get, get to fight in the stands, and we all get suspended, and Ron gets suspended you know, for the whole season. I end up losing $3 million. But to what I was, I was trying to say is, if that happened today, I wouldn't. We wouldn't have got suspended three million dollars. I wouldn't have got suspended thirty uh, games. The wrong wouldn't have got suspended for the rest of the season because we were at work. We were we were at work playing in the NBA. We were fighting fans because things were thrown at us. If you if in any state or any place in the world, Ethan, if a beer is thrown in your face, that's assault. Mm-hmm. But when you dealing but when you dealing with rich black athletes. You just have to take it. Yeah. But I mean, today, yeah, but, yeah, yeah, but with I mean, everything going on today and how and how we're speaking up now, if that happened today, it would be a totally different situation. Now, it's good that things are changing. But I think about, you know, you have brawls in hockey all the time, right? You know, and all the you, time. Don't, you don't have and that's mostly white guys and you don't have penalties like you've had in basketball. And then I see, you know, people make a fair point that when you looked at like, you know, for example, what happened with some of the, you know, the, the violence and other stuff that happened around the George Floyd, you know, stuff and, and all of that. But then people compared the police crackdown on that, which could be pretty onerous with what happened when you had mostly white people 
protesting against the, you know, the vaccine or the, the mask restrictions and all the, the COVID stuff. And once they're saying, is there some equality going on here? Or is it simply the fact that when we see black people, you know, getting violent or acting out, we're going to crack down, whether it's in sports or in broader society, whereas there's basically a higher tolerance of white people acting out and getting violent, whether in sports or in broader society in this very similar ways. I mean, you agree with that analysis? That's a great analysis. You're exactly right. And it should never be a time where the Indiana Pacers are playing basketball, a cop will should run on the court and to spray Reggie Miller saying and saying you do not know that Reggie Miller's on the Indiana Pacers. That should never happen in the arena. Everybody that anybody that, that works for the Pistons or, or, or that's involved with the organization all should know Reggie Miller's in that arena. For for a cops for for two cops to be there, your job is to protect the players and to make sure that this the, the event is safe and you don't know Reggie Miller's on the team and you about to mace him in front of the world. That says a lot about that night. But I, that's why I was glad we was able to put that documentary out because a lot of things we couldn't say and show came to light. And if that happened today, uh, I, I think we would have been better taken care of and better defended. Yeah. I mean, look, this is it's a long history we're talking about here, because if you look at the origins of the drug prohibition laws, I mean, when it came to opium and the opiates, it was about anti-Chinese prejudice. When it came to cannabis, it was actually about prejudice against, you know, Mexican-Americans and Mexican migrants. When right. it came to cocaine, right. it was about black people using cocaine in Louisiana and out in the South and white people being afraid of what a what a Negro crazed on cocaine was going to do to our precious white women. Right. And about their becoming, right. you know, violent. So there's this, there's this long history going back there that continues to be part of the culture. And mind you, not just in the U.S. I mean, you talk, you look at even at the United Kingdom, right, where they don't have cops shooting people in the same way, but they got a surprisingly large number of people dying in custody, oftentimes black people as well, getting disproportionately arrested. You know, you see the same thing playing out. I mean, U.S. is special, but this is a phenomenon that goes even more broadly beyond that. So... I mean, for me, I'm happy to see the activism around athletes and others around cannabis reform and not testing for this stuff, branching into other areas like broader civil rights, like broader racial justice, you know, because I think that's, you know, it's, that's the way this thing is going to open up and really can gain some not just traction and momentum, but some real staying power, you know. So listen, Stack, right. I got to ask you two last questions before you go, and they're both going to be outside what we've been talking about. The thing that's booming more quickly than anything else in the drug area right now is psychedelics. People using psychedelics, investing in psychedelics, you know, and, and this is an issue where you still see very few black people involved, right? You see more and more black people getting involved in the cannabis industry now. It's not just Al Harrington, it's other famous, you know, celebrities and others and just simple black entrepreneurs. But the psychedelics, not much going on in terms of hearing about black people using it or black people investing in it. Is that strange? Have you thought about it? Is that going to change in some way? What well, do you think? I'm, 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 well, I can give you one reason now, because I don't even know what it is. See, they're saying we, black, black, half of the black people are not involved in it because we don't even know what psychedelics is. I'm talking about uh, psilocybin mushrooms, magic mushrooms. I'm talking about. Oh no, talking I can speak about, on mushrooms. I'm talking, I can speak on mushrooms. Okay, I'm talking about mescaline, sometimes LSD, and also MDMA ecstasy, which isn't really a psychedelic. But there's all this medical evidence now about people getting tremendous benefits in dealing with depression and anxiety and addiction and a whole range of other things. There's now startup companies that are worth a billion dollars. I mean, what's happening in the psychedelics area is ha like what happened in the cannabis area. You know, both in terms of use and in terms of the markets, different in some respects. But when I went to a psychedelics conference in Miami last month, like there is almost no black people there. There's a few, 
right? But I'm just saying there's something there. So tell me about you and and, and magic mushrooms. I know for sure black people we don't like hallucinate. That's one thing. <laughs> but uh <laughs> I know I but, but the mushrooms are becoming big around cannabis users because they're starting to, they're starting to learn the positive side of mushrooms as well. I know one guy, his daughter was going through a, a, a phase where she wouldn't talk, she wouldn't say anything to him, you know, and just one day he, he took a small piece and gave it to his daughter. He said the conversation he had with his daughter for the, for the next two days had them both in tears and she, she said things to him that she never would have probably would have got out if he wouldn't have gave her the mushroom. You know, take 10 minutes later, she, she was a different person. So I know what that did for him and I know what that did for his daughter, you know, a relationship. And I know that mean more to him than anything. So that was one positive effect of it, you know? And, and like I said, I know a lot of people that's in the cannabis space are starting to get involved with things like mushrooms because they're starting to see the positive effects of it. And some people like the way that uh, it brings them down and gives them a relaxation more than cannabis. Well, listen, Stack, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show with me. I understand you're, you're getting married pretty soon, so mazel tov on that. I really respect thank the work you, that you're you. doing with the podcast, the way you're speaking out on the cannabis issue, the way you're getting involved in the racial justice issue around George Floyd. So, so just thanks ever so much for doing what you're doing. More power to you. Please keep it up, and uh, God bless. All right, my man. Anytime. Thanks for having me. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Join me next week for a conversation with Simeon Schnapper, founder of the JLS Fund, which invests in psychedelic startups. He's been one of the principal people teaching me about the rapidly evolving business of psychedelics. A family member, maybe a year ago, he's like, I read this thing in the, the paper. It's just this ecstasy and, and helping vets. And I go, yeah. And he's like, is that what you do? And I'm like, that's exactly what I'm doing. And he's like, ah, oh, I always thought you were just a drug dealer. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> now you're legit in the eyes of the family. Simeon, yes, huh? yes, yes, indeed. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.
Sierra Leone has some of the world's highest maternal mortality rates. One nurse, Zainab, has not lost a single mother. This Mother's Day, join care in supporting maternal health around the world. Learn more at care.org slash Mother's Day. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.